Good morning again. As Todd said earlier, we begin a new series today on the book of Nehemiah. And so to find this um, in your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, um, there's a few extra back there on the Connect cart, and you can just grab one, and it's on page 226. But if it's in your Bible, uh, if you find Psalms, that area, Job's right before that, and then Nehemiah's right before that. Um, It's also printed in your bulletin on page 7. But before we do that, we were just in Galatians, and so uh, there's a lot, a lot of difference between those two books, and so I'm going to um, attempt to very briefly um, give you the history of Israel and get you, we talked a lot about Abraham, and uh, I'm going to jump you from Abraham to Nehemiah. I think I can do that in about four or five minutes. You can see how I do. All right, so you remember Abraham, God gave him a covenant, unconditional covenant, that he would have, be this great nation, but he had no kids, right? And you remember Uh, miraculously in his old age, he had Isaac. And then Isaac had Jacob. So at this point, the people of God are just a family. Well, then uh, you remember Joseph and the kids, you might know this story, the famine, right, in Egypt. And he's there. And so he brings his whole family to Egypt. Then they grow to be a great multitude in Egypt. Okay, so now it's a huge people, but they become slaves. Remember Pharaoh? And then who comes to bring them out? Moses, right? Moses brings them out. Remember the 10 plagues? He brings them out they now have their freedom. There's the big mountain, and God gives the law. So he gives the Ten Commandments, the rest of the law, to Moses. And so now they're great people. They now have a law. Well, then through Joshua, they go into the promised land. Now we got a land, a great people, and a law. Then fast forward some, we get a great king. So now they are a real nation, King David. One of the greatest kings ever of Israel, man after God's own heart. But unfortunately, adultery and murder trip him up. And uh, so but God is gracious, doesn't say, I won't judge you in your generation. It'll come in the generations to come. Solomon, his son, uh, was the wisest man ever, right? And so this is the high point of the wealth um, and the success of Israel. Well, he uh, marries uh, 700 foreign women. Bad idea. They lead his heart away, and uh, God judges him under him, his kids, divided nations. You now have 10 tribes in the north and then the two southern tribes, Um, and then we have this divided kingdom. They go on. God sends lots of prophets, and the prophets say, turn back to God, turn back to God. Of course, they don't listen, and so then God kicks them out. 722, uh, Syria comes in, takes the whole northern kingdom out into exile, all spread out. Fast forward to 586, so southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer. Then Babylon. Uh, Kids, you know the name Nebuchadnezzar? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Nebuchadnezzar comes in. And takes them out. And so now all of Israel is in exile, spread out everywhere, 586 BC. Then you go on from that, and uh, uh, finally, so 70 years of exile, Cyrus uh, defeats Babylon, and uh, he allows some of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And the book right before Nehemiah is Ezra, he's the one who rebuilds the temple. So now we're to like the 450s, maybe 458. They're back in, rebuilding the temple. Then after Ezra comes Nehemiah in about 445. Here's a fun fact. In um, an old Bible, like the Bible in the days of Jesus, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book. Two stories are combined. In modern Bibles, they're now two books. So in full disclosure, we're studying the second of those, Nehemiah. Uh, So that, I I wasn't timing it, um, but hopefully that was about four or five minutes. And that got you up to speed. So kind of you know, and and kids, you should have that in your head. When you open your Bible, you should kind of have that big picture of the history of Israel to know where you are. 
445 BC, remember before Christ there was 400 years of silence, we're really close to that. And so Nehemiah is almost at the end, historically speaking, of the Old Testament. Now granted, it's kind of in the middle of your Old Testament, but chronologically, we're almost at the end before Christ will come 400 plus years later. Okay, so new year, something new. Um, I got something new for you. Um, So something else responsive. I'm going to read the passage in a second. And then I'm going to say at the end, as I often do, this is the word of the Lord. And then you get to say, thanks be to God. Okay, are you ready? Not right now, but remember it in two minutes. This is the word of the Lord. And then you'll say, thanks be to God. Okay, Nehemiah chapter one, we'll go through the whole first chapter. This is God's inerrant and perfect word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exiles, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It'll get easier after a few weeks of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you for your word. We thank you for Nehemiah and what you did in his generation. We pray that we would not only love and worship you more because of this, but that it would impact how we view you and what's possible today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So who is this Nehemiah? Well, we find out in verse 1, he's the son of Hakaliah, but we have no idea who Hakaliah is, so it doesn't help much. Well, the last verse gives us a clue. Look at verse 11, the very end, it says, 
Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now connect the dots here, and this is really bizarre. Okay, he's an exile, he's a slave, and he's, in, he's here in, in the citadel, and uh, he's the cupbearer. So kids, this is not just the, you know, your parents might say, could you put drinks on the table? Not, don't think that. This is a guy that is completely trusted by the king. The king entrusts his life to him in this day. A common way to assassinate the king was to poison his drink or poison his food. And so the cupbearer was completely loyal, completely trusted by the king to sip the wine before he did, to make sure it wasn't poisoned, to guard it, to maybe even taste his food. So the weird part is, is that he's a Jew. So if you're this foreign power who's defeated Israel, who are you probably not going to choose to be your cupbearer? Someone who might have a motivation to poison you. This is very bizarre, very atypical that, that this pagan man would choose this Jew to be his cupbearer. So what do we know about him, about Nehemiah? Well, he's, he's so loyal, he so, has such integrity, so trustworthy that this man trusts him with his life. And likely also his family, right? He's also a beach protector. He, this man would also have to pass through the harem. He had access to the whole court, completely trusted. Often these, sadly, would be made eunuchs. So do we get any indication that Nehemiah is real bitter about the lot in life that God gave him? No, we don't get that indication at all. We see a man content to serve even a wicked dictator who's defeated him. Well, that's important. What's our situation? Look at those first verses. It happened, he's there in the citadel, and Hananiah, his brother, likely even um, from birth, a blood brother, came with certain men from Judah, and he asked him, he says, you know, how are things there in Jerusalem? And then look at verse 3. The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The people are doing terrible, and the wall, you see there after that, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. It's all bad news. He gets nothing but bad news. How does he respond to this news? I'll tell you that in just a second. But think about yourself. How do you respond to a difficult situation, a trial, a challenge? As you think about that, I want you to imagine a young married man. Our young married man is a Christian man. He knows his Bible, and he found Ephesians 5. And even in Sunday school, it, it came up there as well. It says that a man is to lead his family. He's a spiritual leader. He's to lead his wife and his children. And so he comes into this marriage really excited and gung-ho. I'm going to lead my wife. I'm going to, I'm going to follow this, this biblical pattern of what it means to be a good Christian man. But little does he know, his wife hasn't gotten this memo. And uh, she is going to have nothing to do with it. And she opposes him in his spiritual leadership. And so how does he respond? Well, he takes the three classic strategies that most men take. Um, first, self-reliance. He just doubles down and tries harder. As it probably doesn't surprise you, that doesn't go well, and she just resists harder. So then he tries the second main strategy is despair. <laughs> so he turns to despair, and he just says, this is hopeless. What in the world's going on? I'm trying to obey God and this woman you gave me, God. And um, then he turns to the third, which is apathy. Finally, he just gives up. Oh, I'll ask the boss at home. She'll tell us what we're going to do. <laughs> Ephesians 5, ah, whatever. He just he turns apathetic. Now, these, these same strategies are used by many of us in all kinds of situations. 
Self-reliance, despair, and then apathy. How does Nehemiah respond to his bad situation? He does none of those. And if you've tried those strategies, you know they all fail. We need something better than that, don't we? Self-reliance, despair, and apathy never really produce any good fruit, right? They didn't for me. So let's look. Look at verse 4. How does Nehemiah respond to all this bad news? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Now his weeping is not despair. Because what does he do next? I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, that's how he responded. So look at verse, um, I'm sorry, page 7. You see the outline? Why can we respond like Nehemiah to trials? Three points. God's character is glorious. God's track record is flawless. And God's relationship with us is unchanging. So first, God's character is glorious. Um, kids, how do you decide if you're going to ask your parents a favor? Kids, what do you think? How do you decide if you're going to ask your parents a favor? If your dad comes home and he looks really angry and grumpy, are you going to ask anything of him? Nope. If your mom looks like she's just about to lose it, are you going to ask her anything? You might wait till later, right? What if your parents just always say no? Why bother? They're, good. They're just going to say no. Right? This is how you decide whether, what if your dad's terrible at math? Are you going to ask him for help on your math homework? Nope. Okay, there's two, there's two criteria that you just used. One was ability, because your dad not know how to do math, and the other is approachability. Ability and approachability. So let's think about God, his ability and his approachability. Look at verse 5. He begins his prayer. We're going to walk through his prayer. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. The great and awesome God. How do you know that God is great and awesome? The great and awesome God who keeps covenant steadfast love. I want to tell you a story. This is from 1963. That was a few years ago. 1963, um, Erskine Wells is, um, he was in the Marines in World War II. He got out, he became a lawyer. He's in his law office, busy day. And a pastor comes in named Sam Peterson, unannounced, shows up to interrupt his day and says, Erskine, I got this idea. This was, okay, so just historically, PCA doesn't start till early 70s. And so this is before that. This is the decline of the Presbyterian church. Things aren't going well. And so he comes to his friend and says, Erskine, we need to start a seminary. Remember, Erskine's a lawyer for that a Marine. He's like, so he listens politely. He says, what do I know about this? How in the world could, I'm not the guy to help start a seminary that's true to the Reformed faith. Sam Peterson says these memorable words. He says, Erskine, how big is your God? It's a question he asked him. Erskine, how big is your God? Erskine sat back in his chair for a moment and said, Sam, when do we begin? You see in that question, he challenged Erskine, not about his own ability, but he said, how big is your God? Your view of God is going to determine how you respond. Nehemiah obviously had a very high view of God. He has great and awesome God. Oh, you want to know what seminary that is? They started that seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary. It trained me and countless other pastors and missionaries since 1966. I praise God for their vision. The Lord did bless it. 
So I ask you, how big is your God? How big is your God? So at verse 5, he says, keeps covenant. You remember a covenant? Covenant is a binding agreement. He did that with Abraham. A one-way covenant that God would keep up his side of the bargain. Steadfast love. It's talking about covenant love, that his love never fails. And so Nehemiah approaches God. Remember our two things, kids, right? When do you approach mom and dad? Not when they're grumpy. He knew that God had the ability to and also his approachability. Two very important things. But so he, he shows up at God and then what, he looks at himself. Look at the next verses, six and seven. Let your ear be attentive to the, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. And then look what he says next. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, your statutes, and your rules that you commanded to Moses. Now, you can actually relate with this more than you realize. Have you ever shown up to a party, you look at everyone else, and you look at yourself, and you say, I'm way underdressed? Have you ever had that experience? It's kind of awkward for the rest of the evening. What did you just do? You looked at the other people, they're all dressed nice, and you're not. And you feel very awkward. This is what happens every time we approach God, right? You look at God, and you see this great and awesome God, and you look at yourself, and the natural next thing to do is to repent, isn't it? To say, God, I am not, I'm way underdressed for this conversation. I'm a sinful man. Wash me clean. Is that the way you feel when you approach God? It should be. It's absolutely reality. That's why we do it in our services. When you approach God, it is appropriate to confess your sins. Okay, so then he moves and he's going to quote Deuteronomy. Because not only is God's character glorious, his track record is flawless. God's track record is flawless. Look at verses 8 and 9. Okay, so after he confesses his sins, the sins of the nation, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. All right, this is wild. Listen to this. Okay, so we just did that whole summary of Israel. You jump back, and we're here in the desert, and God gives the law to Moses. Are they in the promised land yet? No. Are they a big nation yet? No. Are they, so he's already saying, look at these verses and think about the time they're given. He says, if you are unfaithful, God says, I will scatter you among the peoples. They aren't even in the promised land yet. But then he says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts in the utter parts of the heavens, from there I will gather you and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. That's cool. God is already thinking ahead and is already telling them before they're even in the promised land that when you get kicked out of the promised land, turn back to me and I'll bring you back. And so then Nehemiah knows his Bible and then uses that. Isn't that cool? I think that's pretty cool. God has an amazing track record. Nehemiah knows it. Look at verse 10. See if you can figure out what historical event this might be talking about. They are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. It's the Exodus. Remember, that's Moses bringing them out. <clears throat> that was an unbelievable. Read that. Because if you don't know that story, it's well worth knowing. Ask your parents to tell you the story of the Exodus. 
God obliterates Israel, I mean, uh, Egypt ten times. Brings them out, then the Red Sea, he parts it, they come through, then Pharaoh's army gets crushed. This is um, the primary way that God uses as his resume the rest of the Old Testament. You know that? I am the God who brought my people out of, Israel, out of Egypt. Why? Many of you have resumes, right? What's on your resume? Why do you even have a resume? What do you use it for? Well, you have a resume, so when you're applying for the next job, you give it to them, and you're trying to prove to them that you have past experience, that you can do the new job that, they wanna, that you want to get, right? Isn't that what your resume is for? So what about God's resume? It's exactly what God does. He says, look, here's my resume. His track record is flawless. Do you believe that? His track record is flawless. How do you learn God's track record? The primary way is by reading your Bible. Coming to church, that's what we're doing. We preach through the Bible so that you will learn his track record. Parents, you need to teach his track record to your kids. How are your kids going to know that God is great and awesome unless you teach them? And kids, you need to pay attention when they teach you. We have a great and awesome God. Another way is read biographies. Men and women of faith throughout the ages. Show how, read how God showed up for them. And the third way is just remember how God has been faithful in your life. Has God been faithful in your life? Have you seen him come through for you? Remember that. And it will convince you of his track record. But you see, these first two points aren't enough. Just that God's character is glorious and his track record is flawless. Because if he doesn't care about you, it's not going to help. That's our third point. God's relationship with us is unchanging. How do we know that? Look at verse 10 again. And kids, you can circle the word your. See if you can find the word your in this sentence. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power. He's saying, God, they're they're yours. And then we remember in verse 5, he said that he keeps covenant, his steadfast love. You see, God never changes. That's why he promised in Deuteronomy. Hey, when you get kicked out of the land, you'll turn back to me. Moms, can you pick your kid's voice out from a crowd? Your baby's cry? Do you recognize? Most moms that I've met have this uncanny ability. That's my baby. I'm not as good at that. But a mother often knows her children's voice. God is like that. God is like that. I mean, let's just pause and think, this is a prayer, right? I want, to, I want to convince you how bizarre prayer is. You have the audacity to just any time close your eyes and expect that you have an audience with the king of kings. You ever think about that? I mean, I can't even call customer service. I don't even expect to get a real person for a long time. I'm going to press the button buttons, listen to some elevator music. I mean, think about if God worked like that. If you've ever worked in customer service, the angels are tier one and tier two. And uh, if, they can't, if they can't handle your prayers, they just escalate up the, the line, right? I'm here listening to some angels singing for a little while. And as soon as God's free, you can get to talk to him. No, you just close your eyes and you immediately expect that God is listening to you. You're right, he is. But it's bizarre. It is bizarre and wonderful and glorious. 
that you have access. Why is that? Remember, we just finished Galatians. If you went on the retreat, you memorized Galatians 4, 4, and 5. Kids, you still know that? I won't ask you to come here and say it. Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says, I'll, I'll give it a try. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us, those under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. It was at least close. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. You are his children. It's just like the mother. You don't wait on hold for mom, unless there's a bunch of kids in line. Right? You have access to your parents. God is your parent. The reason you can pray like that is because he's your parent. If you're a Christian, then you are his adopted child. Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is even on your worst day, right? Because remember last, I'll test you again, what does justification mean? Remember that from Galatians? Justification is that he got all your sin, he gave you all his righteousness, so even on your worst day, you can approach God. Or you'll naturally repent when you look at him and remember how not glorious you are. But yeah, we can approach him even then. God's relationship with us is unchanging. They were still his people, though they were scattered. So if you believe all this is true, you can and will run to him in challenges and trials. Look at verse 4 again. How did Nehemiah respond? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's quite a response, isn't it? I mean, they've been in captivity longer than he's been alive. He's probably never been to Jerusalem. He likely grew up in captivity. He's fasting and praying because he loves God. Remember our three classes strategies? What did our young Christian man do? First, he was self-reliant. Then he despaired. And then he turned to apathy. Now you can apply those and use those all over the place, but I don't recommend it. Did Nehemiah respond that way? No. You see, our young Christian husband should read this, and he should mourn and fast and pray that God would turn things around in his own home or whatever challenge you have. This is a much better solution. Now, why do people fast? It's quite a bizarre thing as well. This morning, I'm just bringing you lots of bizarre things. Like, I like to eat. I don't know about you. Now, the idea of not eating does not sound all attractive. Kids, does that sound exciting? Hey, let's not eat. That doesn't sound good. Why would anyone do that? You know, you can actually relate with this more than you realize. Have you had plans that you canceled because there were a better option? Sure. You were going to clean your room, and your friend said, let's go play. And you said, hey, mom, can I do that later? I have something better I'd like to do. Adults, we do this. We planned on doing this, and we get an offer to do something else, and we cancel those plans and say, I'm going to go do this. And so fasting is doing just that. I plan to eat three times a day, every day. I don't know if you have that plan, but fasting is saying, I'm going to cancel those plans because I have something better to do. Nehemiah is doing that. He says, better than eating is I want to see God's face. I have, something, I have an important appointment I want to keep with the king of the universe to plead with him to do something, to show up. To plead with him to show up. In just a month, we're going to do that. We and many of the other churches in Canberra have a day of prayer and fasting. 
Why are we doing that? Because the thing we think we're called to do, well, what do do we think we're called to do? We believe that we're called by God to participate in the supernatural saving of lost people, to advance the kingdom of Christ, the church militant, to break down strongholds, spiritual strongholds that hold people in bondage. You think you can do that by sheer self-exertion? No way. No way. We, the thing we believe we're called to do from Scripture, just read the Great Commission, is impossible unless God shows up. And so we as a church, once a year, pray and fast. We see God's face and plead with God. The things we're setting out this year to do, Lord, if you don't show up, nothing good will happen. This is why we fast and pray. This is why we fast and pray. I I was having a conversation with uh, Mark Treen. He's one of the pastors on staff at Church of Cane Bay, about this passage, and he shared with me from his quiet time. So I'll share it with you. Luke 5. <clears throat> okay, kids, we're jumping all the way to the New Testament. So Simon Peter's about to be called. He's been fishing all night, and Jesus says this. He says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. This sounds like a terrible idea. Nobody says, at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed, they enclosed, they caught a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They caught this huge amount of fish. You see, past experience is no indication of what God is about to do. Let me say that again. Past experience is no indication about what God is about to do. For Nehemiah, he had nothing but bad data points, right? But he knew that God was great and awesome. Do you know that God is great and awesome. It will determine how you respond to trials and challenges. Do you see God's face, confident that he hears you, expecting him to show up? So if you're used to responding to trials by self-reliance, despair, and apathy, I implore you to stop. Stop. Those are terrible strategies. You know it. There is a better strategy. And I think we see it right here, crying out to God. Have you ever fasted about anything? I encourage you, when you feel like you're up against a wall, make your own day of prayer and fasting. That you have something better to do than eating. To call out to God and say, God, I need you to show up in this situation. You'll find far better results than self-reliance, despair, and apathy. God's character is glorious. You couldn't imagine a better God. His track record is flawless. His batting record is a thousand. Every pass he threw was a completion. Every ring he entered was a knockout. That's God's track record. For 6,000 years, he's never failed at anything he set out to do. It's amazing. That is the God that you get to just pick up the phone and he's there waiting to talk to you. But most of all, his relationship to you is unchanging. You are his child by covenant. He has bound himself to you in an unbreakable covenant. If you're a Christian, now if you aren't a Christian, we need to talk. If you aren't a Christian, you need to be adopted by Christ. You need to repent, turn to him. And then you get this great access to God who will take care of you. Please remember, as you go from this place, past experience is no indicator of what God is about to do. I ask you, my brothers and sisters, 
How big is your God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray to the great and awesome God. Lord, may we know that. May we believe that. May we believe that in practice. I pray that my brothers and sisters, when they're up against a wall, would respond like Nehemiah, would come fasting and praying and weeping before you because you can do something about it. You'd give us confidence. Thank you that your character is glorious, that your track record is flawless, and that you've bound yourself to us in an unbreakable covenant. We are so grateful for this. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We come now to the Lord's Supper. So how do we know that we have a great and awesome God? How do we know that he keeps his covenant and steadfast love? This right here. Nehemiah didn't have this, did he? No Lord's table for him. How do we know that he's really going to keep his covenant with Abraham? Remember, he said, by faith, faith alone, you're atoned of your sins. They're washed away. It's this table, isn't it? And this table behind it is the cross. I'm so thankful that we have what Nehemiah never had. We actually understand that God is faithful because of this table and what he did for us. How do we know that God will atone? It's this. It's Christ's body. Right, isn't it? It's his blood. Because of his blood, you know with certainty your sins are forgiven. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? If God has done this for you, why would you not turn to him in every other crisis, every other need? He can accomplish anything else if he's done the bigger thing, which is send his son to earth to die and atone for all of our sins. Track records matter. Jesus said, Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me until I return. How do you remind yourself of his track record? Well, you can do this, right? The Lord's Supper is a reminder month by month of his faithfulness, that he will keep his promises. He will come through for you. I'm so thankful for this. So let us enjoy this meal together because he does indeed delight to hear your voice. He can pick your voice out of a crowd better than any mother. Because he has sent his son to die for you, what he has sacrificed for you, he will definitely listen to your voice.